Thanks for pressing play, and welcome to Christopher Lockhead Follow Your Different. We are the number one charting real business dialogue podcast, or some people call us an oddcast, for business leaders, marketers, and category designers with a different mind. This is part two of our very special series on how to design a legendary career, company, and category. And if you heard our last episode, and if you haven't, I highly recommend you go back and hear it. It's number 304. It's with a legendary Joe Sexton, and he is a superstar sales executive who made it from sales rep all the way up to president, CEO, and now board member. On this episode, we have a uh, superstar marketing executive. My friend Gail Moody Bird is here, and uh, this is a riveting conversation. If you've ever wanted to know how to drive massive, big change inside a massive, big organization to make a massive, big difference, you're in the right place. You're also going to learn what it took for a, um, a Harvard MBA to become a successful category designer, both at a startup and now at a mega $2 billion corporation. How to get executive management bought in and participating in a massive new strategic initiative like category design and much, much more. You see, our guest today is my buddy, Gail Moody Bird, and Gail is the head of marketing for LinkedIn's Sales Solution Group. And uh, the job that she's done there on category design is truly a stunner. I also should let you know that uh, I've known and done some work with Gail in the past, and she's also worked with my friends and adopted brothers from category design advisors, Mike Damphouse and Kevin Maney, who you'll hear us both refer to in this conversation. The other thing is, this is not just a conversation about how she did something extraordinary uh, with an amazing team at LinkedIn, Microsoft. It's also a very personal conversation. And uh, Gail goes deep and opens her heart up in a way that I think you'll find very, very powerful when she talks about what it's like to be uh, her and a mom and a whole lot of other things. There are a lot of people who would pay $25,000 to have lunch with Gail, and today she's all yours for free. Now, imagine that you join a new company and you get automatically introduced to your new team. Imagine never missing one of your colleagues' birthdays. Imagine being able to celebrate somebody's job well done at at a click of a button. Imagine being able to bring a real human touch to this digital work world we're all in today. Well, you see, that's what my friends at Airspeed are developing, a fun family of Slack apps that are an easy way to connect and celebrate with your team. With Airspeed, you will be able to improve your happiness, productivity, and collaboration. It's time to make digital work more human and, dare we say, more fun. Airspeed apps are designed to work together and seamlessly and save time with a quick and easy setup in Slack. It takes less than five minutes to get set up and begin building your team's culture. So I would invite you to join me and go to getairspeed.com. That's getairspeed.com and get your free early access to Airspeed now. And now with that said, what does Joey Ramone say? Hey ho, let's go. Well, Gail, it sure is wonderful to see you. Thanks for joining me. It is so great to be here. I've been such a fan of Follow Your Different for years, and uh, I can't believe I'm here. So let's <laughs> let's get going. 
Well, uh, you know, we've known each other for a while and uh, maybe not super close, but uh, I certainly know you're a person who has been following her different for uh, <laughs> the bulk of your life, best I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's just say that every environment I've been in, uh, I've been the misfit and uh, kind of relish that. And so one of the reasons I've become one of your sort of merry band of pirates is I, I, I just love the idea of following your difference. So it really resonates with me and really my life story. So anyway, I, I, I feel like you're a kindred soul. Absolutely. Now you have achieved something that is a very rare thing, something we uh, don't often see, which is uh, something I'm so excited to uh, speak with you about, which is you have done category design within a monster corporation that is within a monster corporation for a, a unit of that monster corporation inside the monster corporation. And normally when we think about category design, we think about startups and entrepreneurship. And sometimes we think about major corporations who do it, but you've done it in a highly uh, unusual environment. And so why don't you pop the hood for me and tell me about creating a new category at LinkedIn? You know, this is my second go round, so I guess I'm a, I'm a serial category designer. I did it once at Noodle AI with Steve Pratt, and um, I saw the opportunity to do it here. and And here's here's the here's the backstory. Almost a year ago, joined LinkedIn, and I'm in the sales solutions business. So we sell a product called Sales Navigator to uh, sales professionals. We've got 1.2 million users, highly engaged audience, just became a billion dollar business in 2021. And you so mean the sales navigator business? The sales yeah. navigator business alone is a billion dollar business, right? And um, so when I joined, and actually when I was interviewing, question kept coming up. You know, we've had a great run in the space, but there are these competitors who are nipping at our heels, all these startups in the sales intelligence space. Um, and so there was a bit of a kind of a let's get our mojo back. That was the big question for me as I was interviewing. And I, honestly, I think it's one of the reasons that they wanted to bring me in because I had a real curiosity about that. And you know, I'm all into getting your mojo back. So as I joined, I started talking to them. You know, I, I, I had this, this sort of aha moment where I said, we're freaking LinkedIn. We own the space of, of networking and relationships. And that's what B2B selling is all about. And if this weren't the, the, the perfect quintessential case of being in a category that's crowded, but understanding that there's something bigger and better than all of the competition and all of the bottom fishing that's going on that really gives us the license and darn it, the opportunity to create a category that lifts us above all the others and really claims our rightful ownership in the relationship space, in the B2B selling space. This was the instance. This was the case. So after about a month, no. Darn it. Like two weeks on the job, I called my friend Damp at Category Design Advisors and I said, I think we've got one for you here. The difference is we don't have a CEO to bring into this. We don't have a COO. 
I am part of a leadership team of a business unit. It's a billion dollar business unit, but the way LinkedIn operates, we're just about to be 20 years old. There's very much of a startup mentality within the organization where, um, as our CEO Ryan says, where we work with pragmatic ambition. We're all encouraged to grow our businesses in the way we see fit within brand, guide, brand guidelines, of course. So um, we were empowered. And actually, when I went to the powers that be, said, do you want to be involved? Would you like to get involved in the conversations? They're like, no, it's your business. You guys run it. So between marketing, sales, product, and engineering, we are the leadership team of this business. We were funded and empowered to come together and create a category for the sales solutions business unit. And, and that almost never happens. And if you want a little sort of inside baseball, after you reached out to Damp, he reached out to me. And he said, hey, you know, uh, just had this conversation with Gail and this is what we're talking to her about and so forth and so on. What do you think? And I said, well, my experience with major corporations doing category design is, shall we say, less than successful because uh, major corporations have a giant revenue prevention department and a, a giant category design prevention department. And these things can be very, very difficult. And so we spent a little bit of time talking about some of those things and some of the learnings I've had along the way in that regard. And then I said to him the following, but Gail's there. And she's done this before and she's done this before with you and she knows how to do this. So if it's possible within LinkedIn, within Microsoft, um, it'll be possible because of her. And so I guess that leads me to a question, Gail. It seems to me, and if this is not the case, by all means, tell me how it is for you, that you made a decision at some point, maybe at Noodle, um, that category designer, becoming a category designer was going to be an important part of your career um, and so tell me how you thought about that entering LinkedIn, and then obviously we'll, let's get into the work. So I believe in the kind of the gospel of differentiation. We talked about it at the beginning, being different, creating that differentiation, um, elevating yourself beyond and above the competition. So um, it's kind of what's carried me this far in my career. So it's sort of a mantra. So when I first read Play Bigger years ago, maybe five years ago now, um, it's something that resonated for me. And, and what resonated with me was the getting to the core of the customer problem, putting on the hat of the customer, understanding their pain. And in our instance, we had a very clear contrarian point of view to the way the market was moving. And so um, we did that here. We did that at Noodle. The contrarian point of view is also one that I like to take because it, it captures people's attention. It captures their fancy. They start thinking about their business differently. It speaks to that fundamental truth that's so often unspoken. And um, so, you know, the, the beauty of LinkedIn is that they gave me the liberty to explore some of those ideas. And I also had uh, very willing partners who, all of whom had been here for eight years, six years, 10 years, 12 years. But um, there's a curiosity within LinkedIn that I appreciate. We're so market-driven and interactive, uh, always looking for new ideas. And so, 
the amount of support and the extreme receptivity to the conversation was frankly shocking to me. And uh, one of the first uh, surprising things along this journey, but um, it, it truly is based on this, let's think about not how we're better, but how we're different. And it's something that uh, just rang true for them as it has for me my whole life. <laughs> I love it. And so so the division's called Sales Navigator. And so that's sort of- The division's called Sales Solutions. Sales Solutions, excuse me. And the product, the product Sales Navigator? is called- Yes, Yeah, okay. Is. And so uh, just educate me a little bit. Pretend I don't know anything uh, and educate me uh, who the customer is, what the solution, what the offering is. And then let's get to how you began to think in kind of maybe new and expansive ways about the problem as you as you uh, designed the new category. Okay, great. LinkedIn Sales Solutions was created about 10, 11 years ago to enable salespeople in the B2B space to connect on the platform, on the LinkedIn platform with people who are potential buyers. So B2B salesperson has a book of business. They have some target accounts. They're individuals that they're trying to connect with. LinkedIn gives you the opportunity to identify those individuals who are in categories or companies of interest to you. And then as our product has evolved, it gives you information on how to gently and with permission reach out to those individuals at a time that they're indicating interest in buying. So what are those times? Those times are they're looking at advertising. They're looking at content on the platform. They're engaging in some product conversation. Um, they are signaling intent on other platforms. They are, of course, you know, very, very few people fill out forms, but that's the most blatant way that they indicate it. But also there are characteristics like someone's been in a job for 30, 60 or 90 days. People who are new in their roles are most likely to be thinking about buying new software, examining their tech stack. So we have all this intelligence based on permission-based interactions that happen on our platform. And what Navigator allows you to do is almost have a mission control or a dashboard that allows you to look at individuals within your book of business and understand the signals that they're sending. So yes, there's some data science behind it. There's 900 million members on LinkedIn right now, about 54 million corporations um, who are engaging on the platform. So there's lots of signals. But the important thing about us is that our customers do it in a trusted environment where they're on the platform, they're logged in, they're engaged, they're finding value on the platform. But what we do is allow the salesperson to look at companies of interest to them in an organized way that allows, and now that we've done lots of data science, we have a buyer intent product, we'll send alerts, we'll send them reminders, notifications. Someone just posted on the platform that you're trying to get a connection with. Someone's just changed jobs. All that information, we call it finding hidden allies, finding individuals that can help you get closer to closing a deal. And so that's what we sell. Um, it has three pillars, buyer intent, account intelligence, and then relationship explorer. And, you know, that's really our differentiator. No matter 
where you look in the sales intelligence space, nobody will be able to give you the relationship intelligence that we have generically on our platform. So that's what we sell. We've got 1.2 million users and we've got a lot of headroom to grow. So I remember as you're talking, so obviously it's an incredible offering. And and I remember when Microsoft bought LinkedIn, a lot of people were like saying, well, why would Microsoft want to buy LinkedIn? And I remember trying to explain to people, uh, really? Microsoft is the largest provider of uh business productivity software, one of the largest providers of corporate uh, infrastructure software, and of course, in many, many, many different places. And so if you were that company, wouldn't it be incredible to have an opt-in UGC database of almost every white-collar professional on the planet, what they're interested in, what they're talking about, when they're leaving jobs, what new jobs they're getting, what new job titles are coming up, what job titles are decreasing, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so, uh, you know, the way I think about LinkedIn uh, from that perspective is really there's never been anything like it. And, and the corollary, I remember when I, I got thrown out of school at 18. And so uh, with uh, uh, either the option of being a uh, manual laborer for the rest of my life or an entrepreneur. And, and back when I became an entrepreneur, most people thought entrepreneur was a French word for unemployed. Um, <laughs> anyways, <laughs> I digress. Um, uh, my LinkedIn was uh, an amazing uh, technology that was delivered to every home. I lived in Canada, but every home in Canada and the United States. And uh, LinkedIn back then was called the Yellow Pages. And the way you did <laughs> yes. the all the intelligence and relationship building and all the wonderful things you just described was you made a cold phone call <laughs> and away you went. And so I just think about the arc of the time that I've been in the professional world and think about what a difference it must be today to be a salesperson wanting to uh, break into a set of accounts and to have what LinkedIn provides as opposed to <laughs> what the yellow pages provided. But then think about how the pandemic changed even further a job that was difficult. So. Sign up for the trade show, go to the big event, set up a booth, capture leads, follow up. Well, 2020, that all went away. And so this idea of using technology, working virtually, connecting with people that you had not had the opportunity to meet in person became even more pressing. And so that's why there was a huge boost in our business during the pandemic because people learned. And that's really why the sales intelligence space ballooned as it did. People were looking for ways to still connect in a high quality environment with individuals that they didn't have the opportunity to meet face to face. And so that's, that's part of what's going on, but that what got us there was not going to get us to the next level. And so that need to move away from that proliferation of competition, that need to think about the post-pandemic era and where that next level of growth or burst of growth would come from is where the genesis of category design really ignited the team's interest. Awesome. So let's get into it. So um, yeah. maybe walk me through the process that you and Damp and Kevin and the rest of the team at LinkedIn walked through and sort of where you came on the problem and the point of view and ultimately the category name and you know, all of the seminal foundational components of category design, Gail. So we convened a group of people, about 
12 people, which is a large group, but um, we're, uh, we're a very democratic organization. So the group was 12. Um, flew in uh, Kevin and Damp, locked ourselves in a room for three days to talk about the problem. And where we landed was B2B selling is in trouble. The pervasive nature of spray and pray of spam cannons that are sending unwanted uh, entrails to people based on buying lists, the technology getting more efficient at sending more emails that are getting yet fewer responses was just spiraling out of control. And so uh, we started with, with a very simple concept of sellers aren't selling the way buyers want to buy. What is it that needs to change? So really wallowing in that problem for a while, thinking about what it's like to be on the receiving end of the spam cannon, all of the problems that there are with that, um, the invasion of privacy, the lack of regard that you have for a marketer or a seller who uses those tactics. They don't even know their own market. How are they going to help me with my problem? And so it just became so obvious to us that the direction of the market and especially all the momentum around all the startups that were getting more efficient at less efficient outreach became kind of became the boogeyman, became the problem. And so Did as you we just, thought I, I hate to interrupt you, Gail. Did you just say more efficient at? More efficient at less efficient communication or outreach. Is it wrong for one man to love another woman? <laughs> <laughs> and and this spray and pray bullshit. And the other one that drives me nuts, and I don't know who taught this generation of marketers and sellers this quote unquote technique, but it's got to stop. Uh, around here, we call it obvious lie marketing. And they begin the, the, the post to the, the direct message to you on LinkedIn with a bunch of flowery BS about how wonderful you are. And, you know, when they do it to me, they oh, how much I love your podcast. And they all, they all talk about how much they love the last episode of my podcast and what a big fan they are. And then they go to, and I'd like to be on your podcast, or I'd like to suggest so-and-so to be on your podcast. Or so there's this horrible, like, just, it's like anti-relationship. It's like, you're starting off a potential relationship with me by obviously lying to me. And so yes. some of these techniques that are being deployed in the digital world are just, uh, they're the, they're, you know, if you, particularly if you think about B2B where it is a relationship sale, it just seems um, asinine to me. But, and, and this is where we've shifted our target a bit. Sales leaders are driving the behavior because they're setting KPIs and objectives that are often based on the volume of calls, the volume of outreach. And uh, so, so one of our other objectives is to help sales leaders think about the sales organization of the future, what they should be incented on, what they should be thinking about as they build these teams and how they measure success, what success looks like. And so um, another reason that this thinking, which we'll talk about in a moment, has caught hold is 
that even the leaders who are driving the behavior know that this can't continue. And there's lots of evidence, Pavilion and others are doing studies that show declining acceptance rates, open rates on email. So performance is declining. Leaders know that. Everyone knew that something needed to change, but no one had given voice to it. And that was the door that opened. That was the opportunity. So once we've defined this problem, which we can all personally relate to, as well as substantiate in the data about 30% less response rate for emails that are sent, all of those, all of the data points. All the data is going down in terms of uh, engagement with prospects for when you reach out digitally. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. So the question was, how do we capture this nugget, take a contrarian point of view to the direction of the market is more is better and give it a name. And so that's where the, uh, the shock and awe and skill of Kevin Maney um, emerged. And he came back to us, I think it was day two of the workshop and said, we hear you. We understand the problem. We think we found a category name, and it's deep sales. Well, the eyes rolled. Uh, We were uh, struck by fear and the immediate response of deep sales, deep fakes. My God, what could this what could this evoke in the marketplace in terms of all of the negative connotations? But as we worked through our hesitations, um, the way that this captured our imagination, but we weren't quite sure how to respond to it, we found an opportunity. We found in that an opportunity to also capture the imagination of the market. And if we did our jobs correctly, if we created a point of view that was compelling, that talked about the contrarian point of view that elevated us from the sales intelligence space, we too could capture attention, but then very quickly support our assertion about being different, about creating a category with what LinkedIn is by its very nature, which is a relationship building tool. And so we had the bold idea, we had the product truth, And then it was up to us to develop the messaging that would connect to the various audiences that we, that we knew were existing as well as some audiences that we hadn't really spoke to before, like the CFO. Yes. So now pretend I was a CMO, CRO, maybe CFO or any kind of a UFO, I guess. Um, (laughs) And, uh, and we were considering making a, you know, a big enterprise um, license agreement with you. Um, what would, how would you sort of walk me through the elevator POV pitch on deep sales? Shallow selling outreach with diminishing returns is something that we all know has to stop. We've got some data. We all know intuitively that this is not a successful approach. What we believe is that deeply understanding your customers, your prospects, their relationships, using deep learning to find data that gives you intelligence about people who are interested in buying when they're willing to buy 
is something that salespeople have done for eons. Top sellers engage in this kind of instinctive relationship behavior for selling all the time. What you can do with LinkedIn and why the one tool that you need to have in your sales tech stack, other than sales cloud, is LinkedIn Sales Navigator is because we help all of your sellers think intuitively about building relationships. We actually shift the performance curve of all of the people in your team because we give you the tools to train them to exhibit the habits habits that top performing salespeople have exhibited for years and years. So all we're doing is taking that very natural sales motion that we all know that we all relate to a permission-based selling, but we embody that in our technology. So think about it. Think about the opportunity. If you could take your average seller and put a tool in their hands that allowed them not to go shallow spray and pray, but to get on a daily basis alerts, indicators, leads that would tell them about movement, about activity, about interest in their markets, in their customers, in their prospects that would allow them to reach them at the right time in the ways contextually that are right for them and build a relationship, which as we know is the key to a B2B sales opportunity that moves from an opportunity to closed one. So with that opening, I'd like to talk to you about your sales organization, how it's growing, how it's coming out of the pandemic and thinking differently about your objectives. Let's talk about those objectives together and show you how we can build a part of your tech stack that you didn't even know you needed. But if this resonates with you, I think you've probably uh, started to understand the opportunity. Let's talk about it. Let's dig into your situation. It's so good. I mean, the minute legendary category design the minute you hear it, it just, you have to have it, right? The minute you say from shallow selling to deep sales and the concept of using deep data to deeply understand and to build real deep relationships as opposed to spray and pray, the, like just that, right? And the simple, this is the other thing that's so beautiful. The legendary category design always ends up being so simple, right? And yet so powerful. And so great job, obviously. And I'm very curious, how long has it been since you, um, did you do a lightning strike or how did you roll out deep sales and, and when did you do it? Yeah. So we did the work in May. Our first lightning strike was in September. And uh, we did something really superhuman within the LinkedIn organization is, and this is the challenge of a large organization. Everybody told us it couldn't be done. There wasn't enough time. Campaigns don't roll out that quickly. You can't train people that quickly. It's impossible. Um, but my sales partner, Alyssa, and I held hands, jumped off the cliff, got a lot of support from her boss, the COO. I'm having a vision boss, of the final scene of Thelma and Louise. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. Literally. Um <laughs> So uh, we had support of our C-suites and um, we made it happen. So we took the point of view, which you're very familiar with, 
turned it into something that could be translatable to 1,200 customer-facing people, both in customer success and then the AEs and the reps in the field, developed the sales curriculum, developed um, campaigns. And then on September 20th, the same week of Dreamforce in San Francisco, we had our first lightning strike. So the lightning strike consisted of a 15-minute takeover of Times Square with people taking selfies of an ad in the Wall Street Journal with the shallow and deep juxtaposition with individuals looking very human, which is the way we think about our customers at LinkedIn. Um, it was a momentous occasion. Um, there are folks in the organization that said they've never seen anything like it. Uh, but then the challenge was with the and, and very I hate to interrupt small, you, Gail, but yes. And here's the other thing that's incredible: begin in May, create the category design, all the all the work that goes into it. Lightning strike in September, and you know, for a startup, that doesn't sound particularly unusual. But for LinkedIn inside Microsoft, it sounds pretty legendary to me to get that done. <laughs> Um, yes, there are, uh, there are lots of relationships that we're still repairing because of what, uh, the number of favors we had to ask for to get that done. But, uh, I, I, and I think there's another lesson for folks in a large organization. You know, I spent 10 years at SAP, which is also not known as one of the most fast moving organizations, but, but there's something about showing people what success looks like. And I think there were a lot of disbelievers in the camp of this can't be done. It's never been done. But when it happened and when it unfolded, when people saw, we also did a platform takeover of people with selfies, with the newspaper, um, having events in, in offices around the, around the world. There was a, I didn't think we could do it. Like, darn it. Um, I've learned something here. We can have outsized, outrageous, big, bold dreams, and we can actually do it. And I think there was an aha moment for not only for me, new to the organization, but, but just for lots of folks to have confidence in being that crazy one that dreams big. And, and congratulations. It's a highly unusual outcome so quickly. And I'm curious, Gail, and I realize, you know, there's certain uh, data and so forth that you, you can't uh, talk about, but can you give me some color in terms of what has been the impact and re results and outcomes since the launch of Deep Sales at that lightning strike? Well, I can tell you this. We have a full funnel approach to measuring the impact. It's everything from unaided awareness to branded search, watching our search queries, to actually using tools like Gong to listen to conversations and figure out if those conversations are translating into higher conversion rates, as well as some things we're doing with data science to try to measure the full impact. It's still early days. Uh, we're about to hit lightning strike number two. But I will tell you, um, this has been our macroeconomic uncertainty period savior because it's given our salespeople 
a reason to reach out. This idea of doing more with less is resonating. And so it seems perfectly timed for this recession when CROs, sales VPs of operations are looking at their stacks saying, our stacks are bloated. We need to get down to the fundamentals. So it's really right place, right time for this messaging. And it's allowed us to perform at a level that that we're pretty pleased with, given all of the economic challenges. Mm-hmm. I'll say one other thing, um, the virality of it and the interest from customers around the world has really given our salespeople their mojo back. Um, I don't know if you noticed, but on the platform, sometimes I will see a representative in the Netherlands or in Australia who's presenting at a customer site, at a customer sales kickoff, talking about deep sales and how deep sales as a philosophy is changing the way CROs, CMOs, COOs, CFOs think about selling and selling in this environment when doing more with less is um, is the mantra for everyone. So they've become spokespeople. They've all been sort of... Um, I would say, initiated into telling the gospel of deep sales. And so the beauty of this is it certainly is not just a marketing campaign, but each and every salesperson knows how to deliver the message, knows how to do a demo of the deep sales habits. They all had to be certified, actually, in being able to deliver the pitch. And we did that within within a month. We went to eight cities around the globe we had a really fun campaign. They were all um, anointed to be superheroes. So we had superheroes. We had campaigns. We had masks. We had capes. We had vignettes. We had villains. Um, the amount of support and enthusiasm that we had here at headquarters has been translated to our offices around the world. And it's, it's, it's just been a beauty to see. I think we've really given the mojo back to our sales team, back to our field-facing folks. And it's translating to a lot of excitement from our customers. That's fantastic, Gail. Congratulations. It's huge. You know, particularly, as you say, in this environment, I mean, to arm your salespeople with a radical new category design, a juxtaposition against sort of the legacy thinking of, of spray and pray and all the other others, horrible practices that have emerged. Uh, and t- to your point, Give them an excuse to reach out to customers and share a fresh idea. And a fresh idea specifically that if you assume some percentage of your customers, like a huge percentage of most businesses, are having to uh, react to this downturn, the concept of being able to go deep and not shallow and cultivate new relationships with new prospects, which ultimately leads to new revenue, is probably a conversation a lot of sales and marketing leaders want to have. Absolutely. We, um, we've had what we call deep sales days and deep sales dinners at the offices around the world. We've never seen 100% attendance at these events People are, they're enthused, they're excited, they show up for dinner, they spend all day with us. I was here at an event with our um, sales team in San Francisco. It was supposed to end at 8.30, it was 9 o'clock, we were still talking. People are so not only excited to get together, but excited to hear some contrarian thinking. Mm 
excited to rally to a cause that just sounds intuitively so right for the times that really respects the wishes of the buyers and reaches out to them at this, with this permission-based selling. So um, we've just seen a great reception and a lot of enthusiasm. And we are, um, we're filling rooms around the, around the globe. Fantastic. Now, if I was a new category designer, let's say I was going, I had decided like you did uh, at Noodle and then again at LinkedIn, that this is what you wanted to uh, make a, an important part of your career and how you wanted to make a contribution. And I was just getting started. What would be the handful of things that you would like me to know that you now know? I think it starts with storytelling, embracing storytelling. One of the things we learned as we went from the period from May to September is how messy it is to create that story that resonates. Uh, one of uh, one of my buddies here at LinkedIn is um, uh, his name is Anish. He's a former Obama speechwriter who we've hired, and he's in our external relations department. And uh, he talks to lots of us, but we've become kindred souls in this. This idea of storytelling and how getting the story right is so important. So he's trained us all in the ways of thinking like Pixar and Once Upon a Time and then and then and they lived happily ever after. But that that essence of getting the story right, I can't tell you how many hours we spent in rooms, on calls with experts developing the story. It's chaotic. It keeps moving. You've got to be patient with it. People will get impatient with you, but but that's the essence of it. Getting it right, rehearsing it, testing it, getting feedback, iterating, it's the most important thing. Yes, and of course, I've been to many of those meetings where you're literally having the executive team sign off on every word in the point of view deck. <laughs> Like, well, why are we saying that? Not that. And I thought we were going to say, <laughs> and those can be very long. <laughs> meetings, well, right? I, I mean, but I, but I look at it in a great way. And I say, the story's got to resonate with the audience. And so for us, it wasn't about the, um, like the branding police. It was about, does it really resonate? But there's another point. Let's go deeper. Let's go deeper. Let's go deeper. And sort of unpeeling the artichoke, so to speak, to get to the essence of it. Like what are those habits of top performers, which, which was an idea that came, you know, at the 11th hour. So, so it's just getting the story, right. Um, the second thing is aligning at the leadership level. Some of the cautionary tales that I've heard about this uh, come from a category design activity that becomes a marketing campaign. And so it was so important for us to have our head of product and our head of engineering as part of the initial engagement uh, to get their belief that what we were saying was, in fact, describing what's on the product roadmap. And if there were any tweaks to how we wanted to talk about what we're rolling out, that we were all aligned. But the beauty of this is we really didn't even have to change the direction of the product. We just had to talk about it differently. 
And so to have them as part of the journey meant that we didn't have that chasm between marketing and product that can so often kill something like this, where the customers can immediately see through a message that's not delivered in the product. Yep. The third one is um, using all the levers that you've got. Um, the beauty of working at LinkedIn is we own the platform that as we initiated all of the salespeople, all of the marketing people, the product folks, that we had the best tool to communicate this, as well as you know some of the marketing that we did, but we didn't have huge budgets. And so it's thinking about how you're going to go to market, what you're going to use as your vehicle. For us, it was the platform, the salespeople, and then a few very um, exciting lightning strikes. So those would be the three things I'd start with. Excellent. Thank you for that. Now, I do want to turn to a, a little bit about you and, and your life and career. Is there anything else you want to touch on on the LinkedIn category design side before we go there? No, I, I think we're good. I think we covered lots. Um, I would end that part of the story with keep watching. There's another lightning strike coming in March. Um, we're uh, continuing to think about how to, no pun intended, go deeper make this real in terms of telling customer stories, people who are actually behaving and working this way and showing tangible results. And so this, this truth in advertising, so to speak, to make sure that things are um, not just hyperbole, but they're actually being realized by our customers is the next phase. So we plan to go deeper and, and just make sure that um, everyone understands the, the impact that we've been able to have in just these few short months. Well, long may you go deep on deep sales. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you. Now, we know you'll be watching. Um, I'm trying to think of, I want to ask you as open-ended a question as I possibly can, because I don't want to steer you in a particular direction. So let me just maybe ask you this. How do you think about your career? There's a certain contrarian view that I think uh, we talked about a little bit earlier in terms of category design that I think also translates to my life. So being born in Ohio, going to a historically black college, somehow ending up at Harvard Business School. Um, Starting out in all of the traditional industries that you would expect a Harvard MBA to do, like consulting and banking, and finding out that that really wasn't what uh, floated my boat after all, and that I really, really wanted to understand consumers and sell things was, was a pretty contrarian thing to do. And so um, as, I, as I think about the things that motivate me, it's, it's you know, first of all, making my ancestors proud, right? Understanding that there's a trailblazing nature to some of the things that I'm doing. I realize a lot of people don't get to sit in the seat that I'm in. And so I'm grateful and I'm always looking back, thinking about the ancestors, um, trying to give that motivation to my son, who's also at a historically black college. He's at Howard University right now. And, um, thinking about my mother. So there's an interesting story about my mother. She is from West Virginia. Her father was a coal miner. 
And uh, one of the first people that saw her hidden light was Katherine Johnson, who was the um, subject of the movie Hidden Figures, who went on to work at NASA and worked with the Apollo team and had done some interesting things. But she saw something in her, uh, nominated her for a scholarship to go to college. She was the only one of 13 kids to go to college. But we can attribute some of that to Catherine and what she saw in her mother and my mother. And then some people have seen some things in me. And so I try to give back, think about um, what I can do to bring others along. And uh, in that storytelling kind of way, just realize that I'm part of a long legacy of people who um, have been given this gift. And I want to be at the end of the day that someone can say that I made a difference. And so I try to do that here at LinkedIn. LinkedIn is a great platform for thinking about topics of diversity and inclusion. So um, I'm also pretty active there. And um, I think that red that red thread of being somewhat of a misfit is something that it's a badge that I wear proudly. <laughs> As do I. Now, I wish this was a question that wasn't in my mind because it didn't need to be talked about, but it still seems like maybe it does. And if it doesn't, by all means, tell me that. But the question I have is, I mean, to put it as bluntly as possible, you're a black gal in tech. And these are, we don't see as many gals as we'd like in tech. And we certainly don't see as many black people in tech, uh, never mind black women. And so let me just ask you the question, what's it like being a black gal in the tech world? Uh, well, I've been able to build a cohort of folks that uh, I, I found the rooms that I can go scream in when I need to. But uh, I have to say, being a part of LinkedIn, I go to those rooms much less frequently. Um, so I think there is a, um, uh, if, it, if I could give anyone advice, it's finding a place that lets you be you. And uh, that may not be every technology company. And so I think finding a culture fit as you're interviewing with organizations, as you're thinking about joining organizations is really, really important. So I've been lucky at SAP, large German company. I found a group that had a similar vibe. I was able to to grow and thrive in that spot within that organization. Noodle AI and that merry band of renegades was certainly a place where I could be myself. And so I think I've been very selective in the opportunities that I've accepted and the places that I've worked because it is so important. You can't, uh, I, I think there's a James Baldwin quote that escapes me now, but you, you really can't be two different people, one person at home and one person during the day. And so um, selecting that organization is really important. Um, it's also tough to be the representative when something happens, like, um, you know, the Tyree Nichols unfortunate situation that just happened, happened in Memphis. Um, I relish the opportunity to be a voice that can help people understand what it feels like to be um, on the other side of that, to be the mom of a black son 
who also drives, who could be, you know, trying to get home like he was. So um, I appreciate uh, being in these organizations and being able to teach a little bit and being that that representative, that voice that humanizes some of the stories that the, you know, the media does such a hack job with of sensationalizing what's going on. So um, I like it. It feels kind of rebellious to be a black woman in tech, actually. And I, and I uh, <laughs> relish that difference as well. That's so great. I love everything about that. And remind me how your son's in college now. Is that what you were saying, uh, Gail? He's in college. He's a sophomore. He's in the School of Journalism. Um, we tried to set him up to be an MBA and he said, no, nope. not my bag. <laughs> and so um, he wants to be a storyteller as well. Well, yeah, the apple's not very far from the tree. It doesn't sound like. <laughs> <laughs> I'd agree. <laughs> Now, Gail, you know I adore you and I really admire you. Um, there's many things that we could talk about, but I also want to be respectful of your time. Um, is there anything else that's on your mind that you'd like to touch on? I'll give you one that I think is kind of fun. Yeah. I, Beatles, love- Stones. What? One of these days, Beatles versus Stones. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh and I one have one LinkedIn days- question for you. Don't let me forget. I want to know what happened to the curious button. Uh, do you know? <laughs> curious button. I do not know the answer to that. Our, um, I came in in the era of the laughing emoji, which disappeared for a couple of weeks and then came back. But uh, there's always lots of discussion about yeah. those emojis. Are you missing? The I, I'm terribly button? missing the curious um, one because I use it in two ways. I use it when I'm authentically curious and I'm a very curious person. So I know that maybe some people might use it as a pejorative that maybe they don't agree or it, it's a thumbs down or something like that. But I, I use it as such. And I will say in response to somebody, I, I'm very curious about what you said. Could you please expand upon that for me? Um, and then, of course, I do use it as a hmm, not sure I agree with you. Don't really want to get it into it with you, but I'll hit curious and move on the way. And so I, I just found it's a it's a great response and it's been gone for a little bit and I'm, I'm missing my curious button. <laughs> uh, all I can say is I know a guy that knows a gal that I can ask about that, <laughs> but enough. I don't, I don't know what happened uh, to that. Our, my, the platform is so smart and there's uh, we've got a huge team of data scientists always looking at what's performing, what's not, what's engaged with, what's not. And they're constantly tweaking the platform and what's offered. So I'll poke around and um, see what I can do. I'm curious and, about again, the curious have... button. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, Beatles right. versus Stones. We, You and I have had a little bit of fun with this on LinkedIn, but uh, elaborate maybe for me. <laughs> I think as a storyteller, the story of the Beatles and their transformation from an R&B cover band in Hamburg to at the end of the decade of the 60s, transforming the way people thought about popular music is one of the greatest transformational stories ever. And so 
you know, song for song, album for album, wouldn't compare them there. But when you think about the stories of John, Paul, George, and Ringo, who they were in 1962, who they were in 1969, um, for me, it's all about the story. And their legend, not only of the joy of love and peace in the music, but just the legend of who they were and what it meant to be at the top of the world to be, you know, the richest guys in the music business and realize it didn't mean anything at all is uh, just, it's a very endearing story. And so my love for them is not just about the music, but it's about who they are. Well, it's interesting you say that because who Ringo and Paul are now, to me as a, as a fan, since I was a tiny little boy, I mean, the reason there's guitars hanging Behind me and my uncle John was my uh, crazy uncle and he was my gateway to music and certainly to rock and roll. And I look at Paul and Ringo today and they just seem so magnanimous. And I, they seem happy. I sure hope they are. I remember um, Paul McCartney a little while ago did one of those uh, James Corden deals, you know, where they sing in the car and all in that. In the car. Have you right. seen that one? Yes. With Paul McCartney, and he ends up doing a gig at this pub in, in London. Yes, and, I've seen it. And what struck me is Paul McCartney knows he's Paul McCartney. I mean, he's literally the greatest songwriter of all time. And yet, and so he owns who he is, but yet he's still humble. He still seems like an approachable real guy. And he still seems very grateful that he gets to play music for a living. And so, I, I don't know. And Ringo the same way, although not at the same level. But if you hear an interview with Ringo, it's very similar. And so there's something about who they've become as older men where they sort of um, they relish in the past. and um, But yet they're still humble and they're still real human beings and they're still creating music and and they're still making fans crazy. And, and I mean, there's, I don't know, there's something about those guys that is, it was very special then, but as older men, it's really fascinating to see how they've evolved as individuals and as musicians. Very inspiring. I still, I still go to their concerts. Um, I saw Paul on his last tour. I, um, I, I, I do adore, <laughs> he had a bit of a rough patch there as he was um, sort of uh grabbing ownership of the organization when their manager died. But he has grown into, I agree, such a magnanimous person. I, uh, um, I, I look longingly to the day that I can run into him in the grocery store because there are lots of folks that still have the opportunity to do that. He's a very normal guy. Gail, is there anything else you'd like to touch on before we wrap? I think that was quite a, a robust conversation. I am so glad. I, I have to thank you for being one of the originators of category design. It's literally changing the way people think about doing business, the way marketers and sellers and product folks think about their futures. And uh, I'm just happy to be an apostle of yours. So thank you so much. Thank you, Gail. Uh do you want to know a true story about that? Yes. So as we began to write uh, Play Bigger, my mindset was at the time I'd spent more than 20 years trying to explain these concepts to people with uh, 
you know, limit what I call limited success. I think my batting average was probably 200, two out of 10 people, even people who'd been through it, had massive success with it, somehow still couldn't quite grasp what had happened. And so um, Play Bigger in particular, because it was the first book we wrote, the way I thought about it was, well, if the world doesn't get it after this, I'm just going to be that weird guy in the corner drooling on himself, <laughs> drinking whiskey, talking to himself about a bunch of shit that n- nobody understands or cares about. <laughs> so I was like, well, I don't know if this is going to work. We'll see. But this is my last shot at it. And, you know, to think now, uh, I think we've now written approximately 60 books. Um, if you include all the mini books that have been spun the out of Category Pirates on the topic of category design and things in and around it. And so um, for me to sit here and have you say that is really an extraordinary honor for me because we hoped it would work. We knew it was what we believed the most uh, important superpower in business, but had had limited success in getting people to understand it because it was so radically different. Um, And the fact that somebody like yourself, a Harvard MBA, a a real serious executive at the highest of levels, you know, thinks that it has made such a difference for you and your colleagues and obviously the companies that you have been a part of. um, That's the greatest gift you could ever give me, Gail. Thank you so much. What a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. Please come back. Certainly. Well, there she is, my buddy, Gail Moody Bird. What an extraordinary career, an extraordinary initiative she's leading at uh, LinkedIn Microsoft. She's also got a new newsletter on LinkedIn called Constructing Deep Sales, Constructing Deep Sales. And if you go to the show notes at Lockhead.com or in your podcast player of choice, you'll see a link straight through to that. And you can check out Gail's newsletter on LinkedIn called Constructing Deep Sales. All right. We would like to thank, thank you. Thank you again for investing part of your life with us. We deeply appreciate it. My friends at Clary are the world leader in revenue, collaboration, and governance. You see, today, most CEOs have a hard time answering the most important question in business, which is, are we going to meet, beat, or miss on revenue? Visit Clary.com today and learn how you can get your whole company collaborating and governing on your revenue. Clary, C-L-A-R-I.com today. And don't forget, my friends, at Get Airspeed, check out getairspeed.com. Airspeed has developed a fun family of Slack apps that are the easiest and funnest. Funnest? Is funnest really a word? I should look that up. And the most fun way to connect and celebrate with your team, go to getairspeed.com. All right, today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes, and this podcast is a sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. Um, Warning, it does uh, contain content known to the state of California, to cause radically different thinking, and all oddcasts do contain nuts. Uh, we are produced and edited by the greatest of all time, Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. It's one of my top five. Jamie J and Sarah Knox do legendary technical execution around here, and they build Lockhead.com. Show notes by GM Simon, the Bobus Brothers, EX and RJ do our web development, and Cedric Biros does our graphic and web design. Our law firm is Weed and Jack, and our accounts are three balance sheets to the wind. We record on Squadcast.fm. Remember that Eddie Van Halen was right. Listen to KD Lang. And uh, let's just have a talk about driving, could we? There is almost never a circumstance when you're on the highway going up a hill where you need to hit your brakes. So please, if you're thinking about driving uphill hitting your brakes in the left-hand lane, 
move over into the right-hand lane. Some of us are going somewhere. Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this podcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Andrew Tate. Sorry, Tate. We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Please stay safe, stay legendary, and until we're together again, follow your difference.